welcome back to Green Planet Blue Planet Podcast. My name is Julian Guderlai, and today I have Arjuna Ardak on the show. Arjuna is a teacher and author. He's written, I think, about nine books at this point. He's talking a lot about his newest book in this episode called Radical Brilliance and the Cycle of Brilliance. If you would love to see the video recording of this episode, make sure to check out Facebook and Green Planet Blue Planet's Facebook channel. Uh, otherwise, just enjoy this episode with me right now. I'll give you a little bit more context about Arjuna first uh, and his book because I think it deserves kind of a little bit of the context that makes us really dive deep into the presence of new and learning material. Radical Brilliance is based on 420 interviews with extraordinarily brilliant people. Arjuna Ardak's latest book provides a credible and highly innovative map of how brilliance occurs. And he calls this the brilliance cycle that shows us that when four very different styles of activity repeat in a cyclical fashion, in the same life, brilliance is the result. And Arjuna points out that anyone with the right understanding and willingness to make shifts in their lifestyle can basically create those optimal um, kind of circumstances and environments for, for innovation and originality to thrive. So without further ado, let's jump right into this episode with Arjuna Ardak on Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. Be a conduit of something bigger than the limitations of your mind. It means to be in deep intuitive resonance with an intelligence raining down on this planet that, that really needs human beings to make its agenda become actualized. So in that way, by that definition, Albert Einstein was radically brilliant. I mean, he, his life was not just lived in getting more money and fame for Albert. He became a conduit for this general theory of relativity, which clearly now doesn't belong to him. It's not like, it's not his property. The general theory of relativity has changed our understanding of everything and not just in, in astrophysics, it's changed our understanding. It's, it's, it's allowed for um, the whole technology, you know, electromagnetic revolution to take place in technology. So, and we could keep going. There are so many people who, whose lives were given in the service to an evolutionary force that's bigger than anything individual. So that's what I would call brilliance. And what we can see in kind of reverse engineering, when someone opens to that stream, they are on fire. They feel... Uh, full of an energy that is much bigger than themselves. And very often then relationships and money and health fall into place because your life is being fueled by something so much bigger than yourself. So on that basis, um, we could ask, you know, well, okay, if, if, that's, if that's the golden nugget, if that's what really makes life amazing, what, what does it take to live like that? What does it take to live in a brilliant way? And investigating that. So after I had this car accident, I was kind of laid up with, with, with post-traumatic stress syndrome, basically. I was just like in, laying in a bed, just like, with a, with like an insect laying on its back with the legs wiggling in the air. And this revealed itself to me like a jigsaw puzzle. So, you know, my, my father was a, was a purist with jigsaw puzzles. My father had this method of doing jigsaw puzzles where you would get the, the puzzle, but you wouldn't look at the box, right? You would purposefully not look at the box. You would tip the pieces onto the table, put the box away, and then you would put these pieces together in little clusters where you could see they went together. And slowly you would find out what the, what the image is of at the end of the process, you see? And in the same way, during this time of uh, convalescence, really, 
these little components of brilliance started to emerge. So what we can what we can see when we do reverse engineering is that brilliance is the result of four very different movements. Just like physical health, you know, is not about one thing. Physical health is about good elimination, going to the bathroom every day to be healthy, but you also need to eat good food and those are opposites. Good health requires you to sleep well at night, but if you stayed in bed all day, you wouldn't be healthy. You also need to exercise. So you can see good health is the result of opposite things which have different metabolic functions, different, different subjective experience. And when you put these things together, you have a healthy body. In the same way, there are these four movements which you can see have different colors here. And when these coexist, we have the, the fertile soil for a brilliant life. So let me pause for a minute. W would this be a good moment to go into the four phases of the cycle? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love how you're kind of comparing it to like just a healthy living in that sense and the cycle of life and kind of how there's always opposites that mm. kind of coexist. So I'd, I'd love to go into those phases and, and, and learn a little bit more how this natural state of brilliance uh, really best kind of. Uh, right. Great. So we can start off by identifying four stations. And although you don't really live in stations, you live in movement. If we understand the stations, we'll see how the movements are between stations. So right up at the top, for those people listening to this on audio, we're thinking of this like a clock with 12, three, six, and nine. So at the top at 12 o'clock is what we could call moments of awakening. And this simply means any moment when the attention transcends the limits of the mind. So you have a direct experience of spaciousness, limitlessness, infinity, um, silence, stillness. So that can happen, of course, through spiritual practice, through meditation. It can happen through contact with a teacher, but it can equally happen through great sex, taking psychedelic substances, or through extreme sports. These are all valid portals into spaciousness. So awakening means that you transcend your mind. You're out of your mind. You're in, you're in limitless consciousness. And there's a movement now that starts at 12 o'clock that moves through to three, which is where little impulses of creativity gain in amplitude. So by the time we get to three o'clock, you're in full-on creative flow. The juices are flowing through you. If you're a musician, you're jamming together and you're just being played by the music. If you're a dancer, you're being danced. If you're an entrepreneur, the, the, the vision of new technology is just coming through you effortlessly. So that's creative flow. And we'll talk, we can talk in a minute about the brain chemicals, uh, the neurotransmitters involved in these different states. So if we go down to six o'clock, Six o'clock is about accomplishment, getting things done, operating successively within boundaries, meeting deadlines, meeting budgetary restrictions, keeping contracts, keeping your word. So this is all about limitation. Nine o'clock is actually about humility. It's about the, the recognition of your limitations as a human being and realizing that what you don't know is so much greater than what you do, <laughs> what you do know. So actually, you are highly dependent upon something bigger than your mind in order to operate. So those are four stations. But what they actually turn into is four movements. So the first movement, so what we actually experience subjectively is the movement, not the station. So the first movement is the movement from stillness to flow. 
So that means we start to become sensitive to little impulses. We start to pay attention to little impulses of creativity, which can also manifest as little impulses of bliss in your body, little kind of pleasurable pockets in your body. Like, mm. And you, you move into that, you flow into it, you become sensitive to the flow of creative energy. And that builds in intensity through attention that builds from 12 to three. The next movement begins at three. Now remember three we described as a place of creative flow. So one kind of flow, one quality of flow that happens at three is called intention. So intention is a creative impulse now projected into the future. Right? That's an intention. It's a, a creative impulse with a future goal attached to it. And that begins the next movement from three to six. The intention set at three builds and builds and you start to get things done. You start to set agreements, make contracts, book a studio if you're a musician, you know, build a factory if you're an entrepreneur. You start to get things done. So by the time we get to six, we have accomplished things within time. That's a totally different subjective experience than being, being sensitive to creative impulses. It's about getting things done, holding energy, being accountable. It also, however, requires responsibility. It requires us to make choices and decisions and to be accountable for those decisions. And that actually begins the next movement because just after six, when you've accomplished something, it required you to make a choice. And the choice opens us up to what Gregory Bateson, one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, what he called the double bind. A double bind is where you are faced with this or that, and whichever one you choose, you're going to regret that you're going to regret something about the choice. Entrepreneurs face double bind all the time, you know, being accountable to your customers and to your workforce and to your shareholders. Sooner or later, you find yourself cringing a little bit because you did something you, you didn't feel completely. You're in a double bind situation. A double bind situation. I find this really curious if I may right there, because I feel like no matter what we choose in life, it will always have. Absolutely. And a negative repercussion. Yeah, that, so that's Gregory Bateson's great insight, that double bind is not just the result of bad luck. Double bind is the result of participation. If you participate fully, you will inevitably Amazing. face regret, you see? So this takes us now right here on the, where I'm pointing to when I say here, it's like 6.15 on the clock. This takes us to a place of shame, regret, failure, inadequacy. And these are all like emotions we don't like to feel, but it's where you feel like, oh, no, I can't believe I did that. Oh. And you may feel it about yourself, that you burned yourself out or that you, 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 you were not loyal to your own needs. You may feel a bit about somebody else, but right after six o'clock, you have this feeling of like, oh, of, of shame. And as we move through that shame, we experience, which is a visceral feeling in your body, we start to experience learning and we move through the learning into humility. Humility would be where you can forgive yourself. You can forgive other people. You can, you can feel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a limited human being. I did the best I could. I'm well-intentioned. I did the very best I could, but I'm operating within limits. Finally, now we move from nine to 12 and in a state of absolute humility, you realize I am very limited. I'm very small. There are lots of things I don't know, lots of mistakes I make, 
but there is something bigger than little me causing all this to happen. And if you turn that inquiry inwards, it becomes awakening. It becomes the recognition of your true nature or your higher self or whatever is infinite. If you turn that inquiry outward into the world, into creation, you start to have an intuition of the divine, of something bigger than human, which is causing all this to happen. And so you're back at, back at 12, back in awakening, and so the cycle continues. Really cool, really cool. Thanks for laying this out also for everybody listening on the audio, kind of the clockwise motion. So creative impulses, getting things done, then the emotional kind of journey from anything, let's say fear, shame, et cetera, into humility and somewhat freedom. That yeah. then kind of shows you and opens up this place of your true nature, your purposeful nature, uh, the, 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 the vastness beyond our individual self. Right. And it's quite interesting to dwell for a moment on the, um, the, the brain chemistry involved, because there's a lot of science behind this. You know, I, I was able to talk to some of the greatest brain experts in the world, and it was fascinating to see lights going on, you know, on both sides of the conversation. So if we can we go back through it for a minute and we'll just talk about the, the brain oh, absolutely absolutely yeah. i have a, a bunch of questions but but let's go back right into it okay so if we start off at 12 12 o'clock these moments of expansive awakening well they're characterized first of all by um a, a significant decrease of activity in the default node network which default mode network which means that you're also going to see reduced blood flow to the front part of the brain so there's significantly reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex so and and more of an activation of actually a part of the brain which is to do with spatial orientation which and as that as as that gets redirected we have more of a feeling of boundarylessness right so there's a lot of brain science about how you experience infinity so it's also from a neurotransmitter point of view the awakening is associated with high serotonergic activity. So we're, we're seeing predominance of serotonin as a neurotransmitter. As we move around from 12 to three, there's an interesting dance between serotonin and dopamine. They, they kind of, they dance. And we, we all love when serotonin and dopamine do their dance. I think this is why people are so kind of hooked into Joseph Campbell's uh, way of, of putting it, like follow yeah. your Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting because at the beginning you get this is this has a wonderful correlate with subjective activity. Right after twelve o'clock, you can have very, very, very fine impulses of creativity, just like almost like a melody that you're hearing on the wind from far away. It's very fine, and it produces incredible amount of blissful response in you. So the finest impulses you feel, rather like when you're you know, if you go to a party and you see a beautiful person, you're single, and you feel you feel a little shudder of pleasure, and that 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 kind of pre-flirting state can be way more ecstatic than like full-on ha having sex. You know, so just these finest impulses. So that indicates a little tiny bit of dopamine, but with very sensitive receptor sites, you see? So a tiny bit of dopamine produces a very strong reaction. Now, so that's basically a lot of serotonin and a little bit of dopamine, but with highly sensitive receptor sites. As we move through towards three, we get much more dopamine, but much reduced sensitivity. So it's a very interesting thing how that works, that you get more dopamine, but it produces less results. So that would be like, 
if if the if 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 just after twelve would be the finest impulse of 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 a melody carried on the wind. Three o'clock would be you're going to a rock concert and you're standing by the speakers and it's like blasting, but it's not having such a ecstatic effect on you anymore. That's so that's 12, that's 12 to three, serotonin to dopamine. Now, dopamine, as you know, dopamine, dopaminergic activity is all to do with novelty. It's like, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. Wow. You know, it's actually uh, dopamine is, is um, stimulated by using cocaine where you just feel like invincible. I can do anything. So that's where we have these. Um, we set these intentions, big, ambitious intentions just after three, and the movement from 12 to three is making those intentions real. So now, actually, we shift a little bit from um, brain chemistry to biochemistry because you can see that the hormone testosterone allows a man to push through boundaries and get things done, whereas, the, or maybe rather than saying a man, the hormone testosterone allows the more masculine side of us to get things done by pushing through boundaries, ignoring limitations, and just driving through to the finish, whereas a mixture of uh, oxytocin and estrogen allows the more feminine side of us to build a team, to feel I've got your back, you've got mine. We may not be able to do it alone. We can do it together and we can trust in the outcome. So all of that is a more feminine style of accomplishment. But either way, as we move, riding on those hormones through to six o'clock, as we get closer and closer to the deadline, we see the predominance of neuroadrenaline, of, of the, the uh, neurotransmitter associated very much with adrenaline in the in the adrenal glands above the kidneys you see you, as you're getting closer to meeting a deadline you experience this this release of of neuroadrenaline that you have, you've got to push through which also creates a dominance of the sympathetic nervous system and a, and a suppression of the parasympathetic nervous system. So which means, you know, if your back is aching, you need to go to the bathroom, you feel tired, your eyes are itchy, you tune all that out to meet the deadline, right? So that's six o'clock. Now, you know, we talked a moment ago that right after six, you have these feelings of shame and regret and remorse, and you, you feel like, oh, what have I done? You know, you, you, you start to notice all the mistakes you made. Well, that is actually associated biochemically with what's called parasympathetic flooding, okay? Because you've been, you've been pushing away all the symptoms from the parasympathetic nervous system. When you finally get the job done, you don't need the sympathetic dominance anymore and the parasympathetic nervous system floods in, which means suddenly you really need to go to the bathroom. You know, you really have a headache. You're really, suddenly all those things are really strong and emotionally you really feel sadness, regret, remorse, shame, all the things you were pushing aside. So that would, that, so as we move now, as the parasympathetic nervous system starts to dominate between six and nine, we're moving through to a brain uh, dominated by GABA. And GABA is the brain chemical which allows us to feel relaxed, to feel okay about things. Like I, I've done my best. I forgive myself. I forgive you. It's okay to rest. It's okay just to go have a nap now. I can give myself a break. That's all GABA-induced um, brain activity. And but as the, the brain is drenched in GABA, you rest deeply, you allow yourself a good night's sleep, and it gives the brain the space to create more serotonin and bring us back to 12. So that's the kind of biochemical or neurotransmitter equivalent of the subjective states we were describing. That's, that's amazing or, or, or brilliant to, to, to use the, the same kind of word out of the lexicon. Um, Arjuna, what, what I'd love to understand right now, because this cycle is really 
great and then bringing it to awareness or raising it in awareness. What I'd love to understand is in the daily application of it. Right. Um, I mean, I, I know you're a coach. I know you work lots of one-on-one -on -one sessions. How does this look? Maybe for one in your own life from like getting up in the morning, doing the right things, taking the right supplements to then also, how does it look in people's lives? Right. Well, the truth is actually, I'm glad you asked that. The truth is that what I've, everything I've described to you so far, it's kind of sounds cool, right? <laughs> but it's actually completely theoretical. All right. It's, 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 it's just a theory. So totally. Far. Okay. Because I mean, it, it, although it sounds kind of, you know, great, uh, nobody actually really lives this way. Okay. Uh, what, what in fact happens is blockage because of all kinds of constraints, because of all kinds of, uh, of limitations of conditioning, we don't really live freely moving 12 to 3, 3 to 6, 6 to 9, 9 to 12. We have different kinds of blockage. Now, we've been able, I've, I work with a group of coaches in, in developing this. We've been able to identify four kinds of blockage, all right? Um, and these are addiction. Addiction means that you, you, you start to favor one part of the cycle at the expense of all of the rest of the cycle. So, for example, addiction to 12 would be somebody who thinks that, that life is about spirituality. Life is about becoming enlightened. Nothing else really matters. That would be addiction to 12. Addiction to three would be an artist who says, well, all that matters is to create art, write poetry, paint paintings, nothing else is important. Addiction to six would be a life about accomplishment, you know, manifesting, getting things done, creating results, making money, you know, building a company just for the sake of it. You know, we, got, we, need, we need economic growth for, for no other reason than to feel accomplishment. And then nine o'clock would be an addiction to working on yourself, to kind of self-improvement, going to therapy, going to therapy groups. I, I hear and, lots know. of that as well. Or, I love how in all the examples, I, I can think of myself in different places of yeah. my life or other people where I'm like, exactly. it's totally exactly. real. And yeah. this is why so, I love how you um, outline the full cycle of it, because once we're aware of the theory, we can actually so much easier detect where are we and who can we talk to to unblock the blockage? Exactly, exactly. So, right. So nine o'clock, you know, if you get addicted to nine o'clock, you get addicted to working on yourself. Now that's addiction. Equally, we can develop judgment. Judgment would be that you develop an attitude of disdain or dismissal to a certain part of the cycle. So for example, well, a good example, there's a polarity, of course, between 12 and, uh, 12 and 6. There's polarity all the way around the cycle. So somebody who's really, let's imagine two brothers, right? Let's make, since you're German by birth, let's make them two German brothers, like Wolfgang and Fritz, okay? So they're brothers, they grow up together, they're, you know, they're really in tune. But then Wolfgang when, when they finish university, Wolfgang goes off to India. He goes to Rishikesh. He becomes Sri, 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 Ananda, Nandaraj, Sri Jay, right? And he wears orange robes and beads and, you know, all of that. And so he's just all about meditation. But Fritz goes to work in Deutsche Bank, you see, and, and makes a lot of money and he gets into the mortgage department. He drives a Porsche and everything's cool. There's a so very now, different lives between Wolfgang and Fritz right there. Yeah. So now they meet up, you see, they meet up and Fritz, the banker, looks at looks at Wolfgang in his, um, in his robes. He says, what are you doing? Why are you going to India? What's, the, what's, the, what's in India? Is there some kind of business opportunity there? I mean, what are you doing? Why are you just meditating all the time? You're not accomplishing anything. And, and, um, and then Wolfgang, you know, in his robes, he says in a very calm kind of namaste voice, he says, what are you doing with your life, brother? 
You're not even a human being. You're a human doing. You're not. You, you, you've just given yourself to the to the corporate machine. There's no there's no spiritual depth in you. So they they basically they're in judgment of a part of the cycle. You see, Wolfgang the banker looks at meditation. He goes, "That's a waste of time. It's not accomplishing anything." Whereas uh, Fritz, I forget, I've got them mixed up now. Uh, Fritz, uh, but uh, no, I got that wrong. But just Wolfgang, call him the banker and the meditator. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the, but the meditator looks at looks at a life of accomplishments and making money as a waste of time. Now, equally, there's equally judgment between three and six, and there's judgment all the way around. There's judgment between one thirty and seven thirty. So anywhere you are in the cycle, you can look at the opposite part and say that's stupid. So that's the second kind of of blockage. The third kind of blockage is what we call aspiration resistance. That means that you look a little ahead along the cycle and you go, wow, that looks amazing. It looks like somebody pulling a rabbit out of a hat. You know? For example, uh, let's say somebody who's really creative at three o'clock, constantly writing, making music, and you know, wow. And then they, they look at somebody who's actually built a business and they've got a website and they've got sales and they go, how did you do that? Like, I just have so many new ideas. I can never actually get all that together. How did you actually finish the book and finish? How did you do that? So a very creative person looks at people who accomplish things and it looks like magic. Equally, you could say somebody who's really busy at six o'clock accomplishing, accomplishing, accomplishing. They look at somebody who goes on vacation at nine o'clock who's resting and taking care of themselves and getting massages and getting therapy. And they go, that's, I admire you so much for taking care of yourself. That's so great you do that. I want to go on vacation too soon, like next month, I want to take a break, but it never happens, you see. Once I get there, I'll do that, yeah. That's yeah. So that's aspiration resistance. It happens all around the cycle. And the last form of blockage is called looping, which sadly is all too prevalent today. You know, for example, it used to be, if you think of it like an analogy, a farmer, when I was a child, a farmer was somebody who had geese and pigs and cows and, and corn growing, and it was all happening in an ecosystem. Today, a farmer grows one kind of crop. It's monocrops, you know, and that's specialization. So looping means that you get really good at one part of the cycle, and you just go round and round and round in a tiny little area. So, for example, a copy editor would be somebody operating at like 245. They're just going round and round and round copy editing. They're not inhabiting the rest of the cycle. See, So those are four kinds of blockage. Now, what's really interesting is all four kinds of blockage, addiction, judgment, aspiration, resistance, and looping, they all exist in all four phases. So you've got 16 flavors of blockage. Let's jump right into right? like, how do you unblock and go back into exactly block. exactly how does that look yeah, like it's, it's great very real how does it look either for you personally yeah. or for those 420 people you interviewed in the process of making the book yeah well actually you know what's really relevant is is how it looks for coaching clients and coaches because this actually now becomes a coaching method you see because i i when i work with clients and when the coaches who i've trained work with clients we're mainly working with visionary entrepreneurs who really who are primarily motivated to make a difference to the world. Okay, so in other words, entrepreneurs who are not primarily thinking how to make money, but entrepreneurs who are willing to make money, but they're primarily thinking how can I make the greatest possible contribution. 
So what we see then is we start to develop a context for coaching where we see that people are naturally brilliant, right? Our clients are naturally brilliant. They don't have to become brilliant. They are brilliant. There's only two possibilities. Either I'm humming in that brilliance right now and it's flowing through me and party time, or we can, look, we can identify one of 16 kinds of blockage. You see, it's, and it's very precise that either a client is in a brilliant state or we can clearly see the symptoms of one of the 16 styles of blockage and we can apply the right practice. So really, it, what it means is this becomes a map then for just about anything you can think of which changes your state, right? Any practice that changes your state. For example, meditation changes your state. Going to the gym changes your state. Having sex changes your state. Taking a supplement changes your state. Taking a nap changes your state. Uh, it just anything which we can think of as a practice to change your state, it belongs somewhere in this cycle. So we get a really accurate map for the perfect practice to move you through and unblock the cycle. Very cool. Very cool. So it kind of simplifies the process for you as a coach or for you as a partner uh, to understand, oh, well, right now you're moving through this part of a cycle and, and, and here I can help you or here I can help you kind of align back to your own inner brilliance. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. Arjuna, what I'd love to hear, because we have some people commenting on, on the live video. Oh, good. Uh, someone who read your book and he's like, I can't believe it. I just finished the book a, a day or two ago. Oh, let's shout uh, out to that. So uh, wh wh where do I find this? Tell me on Facebook. I'll go look on, on, the, on the live itself. I'll, um, well, if you just tell me the name on, is it Blue, Blue, Blue Planet? Green Planet, on Blue Planet, correct. Yeah. And then on Green Planet, Blue Planet. But the question was this. Yeah. That person loved the Leonard Cohen story and how oh, you read it. Tell us about it. How did that come to be? Yeah, well, Leonard Cohen, um, let me just have, which page is it? Because I just want to get to see the, uh, oh, there it is. Is it Green Planet, Blue Planet Community? Yeah. That's it's it. shared in the community and in the podcast, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing it. Okay, great. I'm just going to get there so I can look at the comments. Yeah, so Leonard Cohen, in many ways, is um, a, a perfect example uh, of what we're talking about here. Um, he, he, he lived fully in each of these four quadrants. And you can, you can see it. You can see the, the, the little impulses that he just followed obediently. Like, you know, when he said things like, if it be your will that I sing no more, that my voice be still as it was before. That's where he's fully surrendered to something bigger than himself. He actually did a lot of his own engineering. You know, he was very hands-on with everything to do with his music, also with the concert tours. You know, he designed the lighting, everything. So he was very hands-on from three to six. He, uh, he, he very courageously um, went into feelings of depression and, 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 and failure and remorse. So he, he was no stranger to the learning that happens between six and nine. And finally, he was an incredible mystic. You know, he spent years in Mount Baldy Monastery on, uh, um, outside of LA in, in, you know, Zen Center in meditation. So he was fully... Um, fully immersed in all these uh in all these phases so yeah i i you want you wanted you wanted to hear the story of how i met him yeah totally I, I i love that you're describing leonard cohen as a mystic and i think this is something that is becoming uh, clarity for more and more people those who creatively express often 
connect with their inner divine, uh, often connect with the, the mystic teachings, or sometimes even initiates in certain lineages of teachings. So I'd yeah. love to hear how that came to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, sorry, I was, I, I was trying to dull the sound on the, on, the, on the feed. Where do I go find these questions? Because I'd love to see uh, the questions. I just dropped it uh, for you in the comments. In the oh, right. Here I in got it. Okay, cool. Query. Got it. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's a big link. Okay, there we go. <laughs> now I'm going to see you. Technology, you guys. This is what it takes. You have to have a Zoom account to publish on Facebook and then meet the awesome people like Arjuna. Oh, okay. It's Ryan it Schwartz. Hey, Ryan. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so basically, I really wanted to, this was a long time ago, this was uh, 2005, I really wanted to, well, it's earlier than that, I really wanted to interview Leonard for my book, Translucent Revolution, which, which uh, came out in, in 2005. So um, I was in touch with his, um, uh, his manager, Kelly Lynch. And she was always saying, oh, now he's in Montreal, now he's on, now he's on retreat, now he's this, now he's that. I could never actually set up an, an, an interview with Leonard Cohen. So finally, I just gave up. And I, I, you know, I, I put other stuff in the book, like, like I quoted from other interviews. And then suddenly, out of the blue, I get this email from this young woman called Kateri. And she's saying, uh, she's saying uh, you know, Leonard would love to meet you anytime, you know, just come on down. And she, you know, and she was, she was, she was very accommodating. And she said, you know, she would email me at two o'clock in the night. And then she would email me eight o'clock on a Sunday morning. Like it seemed, and then if I emailed her back, she would reply right away. She was like as available as anybody could be crazy. So she set it up. She said, you can go meet Leonard. And she gave me the address. And I, I flew down to LA, rented a car, and I went to meet Leonard Cohen. So we had a great time. You know, we, would, we, we talked for like three hours. And that's it. That's in the book, most of what we talked about. We talked about, about brilliance, about how things flow through you. And it's not really, you're not really doing anything. And finally, towards the end of our meeting, he said, you know, let me show you around. So he gave me a tour of his apartment, which literally took about 35 seconds because it was, I mean, it was, the place was so small. You could, you wow. could. You could kind of, you know, just spin around and touch all the walls. It was like a really small apartment. In, he lived very, very modestly. So at one point, he opened a door and he said, "This is the office, right?" And in the office, there was a, there were these kind of, these tables you buy at, at like at Walmart, you know, that are like big, big plastic table with legs that fold down like a picnic table. Right. And on these, on this table, was stacked boxes. And he said, "This is the office." And I said, "Really?" I said, well, where does Kateri work? And he said, ah, he said, Kateri, let me introduce you to Kateri. Now, one thing I didn't mention that I'm not proud of, but I've got to admit it anyway, is I actually got a little flirty with Kateri, you know, during our interchanges with his email. I was kind of, you know, we was, it was getting a little saucy there, although I was married and I didn't really know about her. You know, it was getting a little, little kind of familiar, you know? Well, you were just about to see Leonard Cohen, so you were getting all happy. I get it. Yeah, anyway, but it was a little bit like, you know, I was saying like, wow, where could I get an assistant like you? And she'd say like, oh, you should be so lucky. And, you know, it was, anyway, it was just like it got a little flirty. So anyway, he's let me introduce you to Kateri. So now I start to get really embarrassed because I've been flirting with Kateri and now I'm going to meet her, you know? So he takes me into the kitchen and, he, and above the sink, there's a, there's a cabinet, you know, that you have high on the wall. He opens the cabinet and he points to the top shelf. There's a little statue of a Native American woman. And he says, that's Kateri. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at the ground in embarrassment because I realized what had happened was when Kelly Lynch, his previous manager, has, had defrauded him of all his money, 
right? He was left with nothing. And so he, he couldn't afford to hire a new assistant. So he made up this person called Kateri as a, as a kind so he of- he was flirting with you. So I was actually flirting with Leonard Cohen, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's oh, right. That, is, that is wonderful. That is, that's, that's very refreshing. Uh, thank you, Regina, for sharing that. I, I very much love hearing small anecdotes like that. Yeah. I have um, two or three more questions for you. And right. one, of them, one of them comes back to the topic of meditation. And you have, I think, like a whole chapter dedicated to like how to sit. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people are not fans of like the classic kind of uh, style of meditation with yeah. a mantra and a pillow. So tell us a little mm -hmm. bit more about how to sit in a way that really works. Yeah, well, you know, thank you for that. I actually prefer to not even use the word meditation at all, you know, because it gets people scared. It's like, ah, meditation, that's really difficult. So the thing about sitting is, you know, anybody can sit, right? Your dog can sit, you know, a child, anybody can sit. It's not difficult to sit. If you can stand up, it's even easier to sit, right? You can sit on a chair, you can sit cross-legged, anybody can sit. People can walk, they can lay down and they can sit. So sitting's easy. So my, my kind of suggestion to my clients is to go buy a, a, a good quality sleep mask or blindfold. I like the one from Tempur. You can get it on Amazon for 30 bucks. And when you put it on, it's made of um, kind of velvety material. So it doesn't, that, there's padding around it. So it completely blocks the light, but you can open or close your eyes. Doesn't matter if your eyes are open or closed. So I suggest people just put on this sleep mask Set the timer on your phone for 30 minutes and then simply sit. You know, you don't have to do anything more than simply sit. And then it's really the rest is not up to you. You know, maybe your mind is going to be very active. Maybe it's more quiet. It makes no difference. Maybe you're going to have, you know, irritated, disturbed emotions. Maybe you're going to feel a lot of love and peace. It doesn't matter. The important thing is that simply by sitting and waiting, if you sit and wait, the doing, including the doing that would try and change the mind, the doing just relaxes on its own because you're just sitting and in relaxing, the quality of awareness itself starts to emerge. You see, the quality of that which is aware. And when I say that which is aware, it is equally that which is aware of, of irritated thoughts. And it's equally that which is aware of peaceful, loving thoughts. It's, it's the same. There's no difference. It's the same awareness which observes all different qualities of the mind. And so what happens then, instead of trying to make your mind peaceful, which is very difficult, or instead of have, trying to have only loving emotions, which is very difficult, you simply relax into observing what is there. And in observing, we release the perfume of true awakening, which is simply to recognize the nature of consciousness itself. Beautiful. I love how this is congruent with your the more theoretical approach behind yeah. you on the wall, because if you're just trying to cleanse your mind of bad thoughts or just feel loving emotions, you're not in a cycle of what it means to be human. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I think this is where a lot of people that I, I hear you on, on, on being afraid of meditating or, or being triggered into thinking what it is, um, very nice to simplify and to just sit, observe and, and kind of tap into all right. What's so what I've just there? described, incidentally, you know, just observing, that would be like an 1145 practice. It's a practice that easily can flip you into moments of awakening. Very cool. Arjuna, who did you write this book for? Like, who, who would you say 
should definitely read Radical Brilliance. Yeah, I think, you know, it's really, the book is really written for people who feel a calling to make a difference. You know, this book is a not, not about how to get rich quick. The book is not about how to become famous, particularly. The book is not about, it's not really about the usual desire mechanism that we easily get hooked into. The book is really about the components necessary, the lifestyle necessary to make an incredible difference to the world. You know, and, and actually, of all the interviews I did, the one that stands out most and that is in the penultimate chapter of the book is with Lynn Twist, who years ago founded The Hunger Project, but then um, 20 years ago founded the Pachamama Alliance. And her life, her entire life, every moment of her life has been given in service. You know, it's, it, it's amazing. I mean, she's, she raised $2.2 billion to alleviate world hunger. She has by now put millions of acres in the Amazon rainforest into permanent land trust so it can never be disturbed. Incredible service. She's totally dedicated. But she says in the book, she says this incredible thing. You know, she says, people think that it's a sacrifice to live this way, that you have to give things up. But he said, she said, there's no sacrifice at all. You give up nothing that was really of any value and you get everything. And it's really true that when you make your life about contribution and service, you are rewarded in a way that you could never have imagined. And everything you thought you wanted through desire is given to you as a, as a it's given to you as a byproduct of service. And that's really who the book is for. When you, if you come to the point where you realize the emptiness and the futility of just trying to get more money for me or better sex for me or a bigger house for me or a yacht for me, when you realize the futility of being obsessed with your own desires and needs and you feel the inspiration to make a difference, whether it's a global difference or a local difference, when you come to that point, this book is a, you know, it's certainly the intention of the, of the book is to give you everything you need to live a life of incredible depth and meaning and purpose and contribution. Beautiful. I have one last question for you, Arjuna, and that goes very much along the line of contribution, mm. being in service, um, also intention. And, and like, let me, let me bring it very much into this like now moment, like from your place of heart, mm. what is the change that you really dream to catalyze with your work and how would that tie into a larger kind of earth vision as, as a collective? You know, what I've noticed, Julian, in, in so many ways, in so many dimensions is I can have my intentions and my dreams of what I think should be. And if I can relax and let go and open myself, what is actually possible is so much more than anything I could dream of, you know. And I see that, you know, I can think about my coaching practice and sometimes I can have these thoughts, you know, what kind of clients I want. But the people I end up getting to work with are so much more. And life is always so much more than what I, than what I can imagine. So it comes back to that, that statement from John Lennon, you know, uh, life is what happens when we're busy making other plans, you know. And so 
for me, I feel like there is there is a, a huge intelligence and and we don't know it directly, but we sometimes we experience it in each other. You can see when that huge intelligence has really taken over a human being, that hum the human being has put themselves aside a little bit. So this, this vast intelligence has room to breathe and it's humorous and it's resourceful and it thinks outside the box and it does things in new ways. So really I would say any vision I could have of the future of the future of humanity, the future of the world is going to be limited by the constraints of my mind. Um, however, we could say it in a broader way, and we could say the vision I have for humanity, the hope I have for humanity is that we can more and more relax and allow that great force to have its way with us, to, to work through us, that we can become, we can become less about me and more about who we become when we, when we are unified in our surrender to a greater intelligence. And then what's possible out of that is completely beyond our capacity to imagine. It's just so much, it's, then it becomes magical. It becomes a surprise. It becomes a, uh, yeah, a delight, you know, and, and, and that's really beyond, that's beyond manifesting personally, that's, that's surrendering to the great, the great force that makes butterfly wings beautiful and makes flowers and, and, and trees beautiful, you know, whatever that is, is so much more intelligent and creative than the limited human mind. So I would say the greatest possible vision for humanity is that we, we relax our sense of personal doing and recognize that we can be danced instead of the need to dance. Thank you. Wow, that's uh, radically brilliant. I love how you're putting that. Mm -hmm. Arjuna, thank you so much for taking the time for being on Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast and for sharing about your book, about the journey of how, how it came to be. Is there anything else you would you would love to share? Well, yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, as we're talking today, uh, at this point in in time in history, uh, just yesterday, um, Michael Cohen uh, entered his his plea, uh, his guilty plea, and uh, Paul Manafort was convicted on. Uh, eight, uh, eight out of 18 counts. And, 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 and still the kind of the craziness is going on. And it's easy to give up hope, you know, it's easy to feel like, oh, my God, the world is just spinning out of control in so many crazy ways. Um, and to feel just uh, to feel hopeless. But I, th I think that the, the note we could finish on is it's always been times of chaos and breakdown, where new paradigms of order emerge you know and if you look at that in the life of a of a chrysalis becoming a, a butterfly um there's actually this very chaotic and, and kind of disgusting sort of gorging it i mean really the state of a chrysalis just before it develops it looks like ugh, it looks like diseased and out of that comes the butterfly and i think it's important to understand that 
when you look at the news, when you look at, when you just, if you just get into the usual conversation about what's going on, everything looks very pessimistic. But this is actually, this, this field of chaos is the perfect soil for new paradigms to emerge. And they are emerging, actually, probably more with your generation than mine. They are emerging. And we are seeing brilliant, innovative technologies, brilliant, innovative new social structures, brilliant, new, innovative ways of thinking about relationship and child rearing and everything. We are really seeing out of the the, the dying and the crashing down of the old me-based, greed-based paradigm, we are seeing radical brilliance emerging all the time. And it's a fantastic time to make yourself available for that. Beautiful. The imaginal cells of the butterfly mm -hmm. rising. Thank you, Arjuna. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been an honor to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. Make sure to follow the podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Check us out either on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you love to listen to this kind of information. My name is Julian Guderlei. Wherever you are in the world, have yourself a stellar day.